Let's turn to the passage that Maurice just read, if we could, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This is a serious text, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be serious today, not like most weeks. But let me just start, as you're turning to Romans 3, let me start by illustrating what's going on here in this passage by recounting a short story that probably most of you are familiar with by Hans Christian Andersen. It's a story entitled The Emperor's New Clothes. And if you don't remember that story, it goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was an emperor who was very fond of appearances and clothing. He spent a large amount of his money on garments and on his appearance. And one day, a few clever philosophers in his kingdom offered to make him a rare and costly garment. And because of his vanity, the king was receptive. He especially liked their promise that the garment would be invisible to all but only the wise and pure in heart. The delighted emperor commissioned his new clothing at great cost, and the philosophers who were actually con men sat before empty looms and pretended to weave a garment. Soon the emperor became curious, so he sent his chief minister to see how things were going. And seeing no cloth on the busy looms, but not wanting to be thought unwise or impure in heart, the official returned with a report about the fabulous beauty of the garment. After a time, the weavers asked for more money. Again, the emperor became impatient, sending his second chief minister, who returned with an even more enthusiastic report. Next, the emperor went himself, and though he's Saw nothing, he didn't want to appear stupid. So he proclaimed the clothing excellent and beautiful. He even gave the weavers medals. Finally, on the day set for the grand parade, the con men dressed the emperor in his make-believe garment and then promptly skipped town. And as the emperor paraded before his people, oh, natural, the whole populace joined in praising his beautiful clothing, lest they be thought of as fools. Thus the absurd parade continued, but in a moment of quietness, a child was heard to say, the emperor has no clothes. At once everybody knew the truth, including the emperor. One innocent remark by a child who did not know enough to keep his mouth shut stripped away the hypocritical pretense of that entire nation. Now, what is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 about? What is this passage about? What is, what, I mean, what is this whole section, Romans 1 through 3, about? Well, Paul is not unlike that innocent but observant child in the story. He's speaking the truth to you in a world of deceit, in a world of confusion, he doesn't want you to stand before the Lord someday thinking that you are clothed in righteousness and in good deeds and have it said about you, the emperor has no clothes. Or more literally, have it said by Jesus, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. What's the truth that Paul's trying to awaken us to in this passage? What's the deceit that he's trying to point out? The truth is this, that we are all sinners condemned before a righteous God, regardless 
of our ethnicity, whether we're Jew or Gentile, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our education, regardless of our religiosity or our sincerity and religious practice, we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. And anyone who tells you otherwise is either deceiving you unintentionally or intentionally as a con man. Paul wants you to know the truth about your situation before a righteous God. He doesn't want you to be deceived. And Paul's, you know, Paul's been arguing this for three chapters, for three chapters. He started with the Gentiles in chapter one. He talked about how their incessant wickedness had led them to become, you know, uh, distasteful in God's sight and, and recipients of God's wrath and God's condemnation. But then in chapter two, Paul talks about the Jews who, though they had access to the law, that wouldn't save them. Their knowledge of the law wouldn't save them. They thought it would, but Paul says, nope. That actually makes it worse for you because you will be judged by the law that you think is saving you. And now in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul puts a few final nails in the coffin of his argument. This is where he clears up the matter once and for all. This is Paul, full throttle, no holds barred, driving home his one inescapable argument that we are all sinners before a righteous God and we need help. We need help. If Paul were a lawyer, I'd hire him on the spot because his arguments are good. He's, I'd, I'd put him on retainer. He's good at this. And by the way, if, you know, if you're depressed and discouraged at the end of this section, maybe after Maurice was done reading, if you're feeling a little you know, sad and depressed, you should feel that way. Paul wants you to feel that way. He wants you to be disabused of the notion that I can save myself. I can do enough good stuff in order to earn favor with God. Paul says you can't do that. Until you stop thinking that way, you can't be saved. You won't be saved. If Paul were a lawyer, I'd hire him. Because what's he saying here? He doesn't want you to get caught in that same situation where the emperor has no clothes. Now, as we approach Romans 3, 9 through 20, I want you to think of this passage as kind of like a courtroom, okay? Just imagine yourself in a courtroom. Everybody got a courtroom, maybe a famous courtroom on TV, you know, Perry Mason or whatever. And, and the, the logic of what Paul's going to present to us here is kind of like what's presented in a courtroom scene. Humanity is on trial before God the judge, and Paul is the prosecutor. And what unfolds in these verses is the charge, the evidence, the defense, and the verdict. That's your outline for today. First, we have the charge, verse 9. We have the 10 through. Then we have the defense, if you want to call it that, in verse 19. And then we have the verdict. Everybody got it? Imagining yourself in a courtroom, are you now? Perry Mason's there. Do you all know who Perry Mason is? Okay, he's... The teenagers are confused, okay? It's famous courtroom TV guy in the mid-1900s, okay? <laughs> Perry Mason. And I want you to be your own Perry Mason as Paul's prosecuting you, okay? See how that works out for you. Try, try to defend yourself against this. So here we go. Write this down as number one. Here's the charge. Here's the charge that Paul puts forth in the courtroom. It's this, all are under sin. All are under sin. Verse 9 says, what then, are we Jews any better off? The word Jews is not actually in the Greek. That's interpretive, and this is all based upon verses 1 through 8 and what Paul's been arguing. 
Are we any better off? Paul says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter about your ethnicity, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, remember what we talked about last time in verses 1 through 8, Paul talked about how the Jews had some advantages over the Gentiles because they had the oracles of God. They had the scriptures. So they were aware of their sinfulness in a really unique way. Not unlike we here in 2019, we have the oracles of God here in America. We have God's word. There's some advantage of that, but there's no salvific advantage to that. You're not saved by having or by reading the scriptures. That's Paul's point here. And to clarify that matter, Paul says, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we better off salvifically? Can we, when we stand before the Lord, when we're judged, say, well, we have the scriptures, so we're okay. Paul says, no, not at all. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All human beings are condemned before God, is what Paul says. Paul says, for we have already charged. Verse 9. In other words, I've spent three chapters arguing this. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Y'all heard that before? What's sauce for the Jew is sauce for the Gentile. And forgive my mixed metaphor here, but your goose is cooked. That's what Paul's saying here. Now look at this statement at the end of verse 9, under sin. I want to explain that because that that means more than just we have sinned. We have sinned. I mean, of course we have sinned. It wouldn't take me long to prove that to you in a face-to-face conversation. We're all sinners here in this room. We all have sinned. But Paul's saying more than just we have sinned. He's saying we are under sin, all of us. We are under the power of sin. We don't just sin occasionally. We are enslaved to sin. The Bible says that we are born into sin. We are under sin's power. John Piper says it this way. He says, sin is like a master or a king, and it reigns over us and in us. We are not innocent victims of sin. Get that out of your mind. We are not innocent victims of sin. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. That's the situation. It's worse than you think. And by the way, that's why, you know, when we get saved, we don't get rehabilitated. I'm just getting rehabilitated. You know, back to what I should be all along. No, you don't, when you get saved, you don't get rehabilitated, you get regenerated. There's a huge difference between those two things. You are dead in your sins. You don't rehabilitate dead people, okay? You have to get new life. You have to be born again. When we baptize people here at Harvest Decatur, we put them under the water and we take them out. We submerge them and bring them out. That symbolizes death. I'm dead to myself and I'm coming out of that water with new life. You're dead in your sins. You need regeneration. Because because sin rules in you. You are under its reign. Now, to all this, some of you might say, well, you know, Pastor Tony, that's, you know, that's a bit of an overstatement, isn't it? I mean, I sin sometimes, sure, but I'm not under sin. I mean, it, it doesn't rule over me, doesn't it, though? Some of you might read Romans 3 and say, I hear your charge, Paul. I hear you say that all are under sin, and I plead not guilty. I'm not under sin. I can control it. I can stop it. I can overcome it on my own. Not guilty. What's your evidence against us, Paul? Do you have any evidence against us? Oh, yeah. 
verses 10 through 18. And, and Paul goes to the Old Testament when he needs to make a point, when he really needs to drive home a point. He does what we should do. He quotes scripture. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's the evidence. The evidence is this. The Bible says no one is righteous. And Paul's, Paul, boy, he's going to quote the Old Testament. It's not just one passage. He's going to quote multiple passages. This is like a mobster with a Gatlin gun here. <laughs> Paul is going to riddle us full of truth from the Old Testament. And, you know, this is in Hebrew, to the Hebrews, it's called a string of pearls. It's when you take a number of different Old Testament passages and you stack them on top of each other to build this impenetrable argument. That's what Paul's going to do. He's going to build brick by brick this impenetrable wall of argumentation that proves that no one is righteous before God. The Bible makes that clear. And let me just accentuate that. I'm going to read through verses 10 through 18, but I'm going to I'm going to cite those Old Testament passages that Paul's quoting, okay? Here's, here's how it goes. You can follow along with me in verse 10. As it is written in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As it is written in Psalm 5, verse 9, their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. As it is written in Psalm 140, verse 3, the venom of asps is under their lips. As it is written in Psalm 10, verse 7, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. As it is written in Isaiah 59, verse 7 and 8, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. As it is written in Psalm 36, verse 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Are you feeling it now? Are you feeling the Gatlin gun, are you now? Paul might have been quoting or alluding to these other Old Testament passages too. You can read these on the screen. Psalm 53, verse 1, there's no one who does good, not even one. 1 Kings 8, 46, there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 143, verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Are you feeling it now? Are you feeling it now, church? I, I can be righteous, can you now? What are we talking about here? What, what's the theological concept that Paul's advocating for here? That's what's called total depravity. You might want to write that down. Total depravity. We are totally depraved. And, and let me define that term, total depravity. When I say that, that doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could possibly be. That's not the case. That's not, you know, that's not what that term theologically means, total depravity. That man is as bad as he could possibly be. We could be a lot worse. And the reason we're not worse is because we have this thing inside of us. It's called the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. We have the capacity inside of us for good. Don't we now? But that capacity for good, that image of God inside of us has been corrupted. It has been tainted by sin. We are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We are natural born rebels. 
We take after our forefathers and our foremothers. Tommy Nelson said when, you know, when kids are born into this world, it's as if they're born with a cigar in their mouth in defiance of their parents. You're like, wow, that sounds like my kid, Pastor Tony. That's perfect. Why are they that way? Why are they that way? It's genetics. Their DNA is your DNA. They take after you. And we are sinners before a righteous God. We are fallen sinners before a righteous God. Let's talk a little bit more about this total depravity and and how Paul describes it here. Because notice how much of that sinfulness is wrapped up in this talk about our speech. Did did y'all notice that in the passage? Just, Just look at this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Snake venom is under their lips. When they talk, they strike like a snake. They kill with their words. James says in his letter to the church, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? Jesus said that this is a result of our wicked hearts. Jesus said from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I remember I preached a message, preached a series uh, entitled Foolproof from the book of Proverbs. Do y'all remember that? Several years ago and and, and I remember just marveling as I read through Proverbs, from Proverbs 10 all the way to Proverbs 31, how many times over and over again in the Proverbs there were this, the, the good and the bad uses of, this, of speech, of the tongue, of the mouth, of lips, over and over and over again. The author of Proverbs is saying, you know, you've got to tame this. This is a problem with you. And what Jesus says is ultimately you can't just deal with your speech. It's, there's something inside of you that's corrupted, that's broken. Your heart needs to change, not just your speech. You got a heart problem. Paul doesn't just address that body part or those body parts of speech, the tongue, the mouth. There are other body parts mentioned here too. Paul mentions the feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Paul mentions the eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So our eyes lust for what doesn't belong to us. Our eyes long to steal and long to covet and long to idolize and long to commit adultery. And to that you might say, come on, Pastor Tom, we're not that bad. We're not that bad, are we? Aren't we, though? Sure we are. You know why we don't see more violence, more theft, more evil in our world? I'll tell you why. It's pretty simple. It's called law enforcement. If we could get away with more evil, we would do more evil. If we could, I mean, there's, there's this thing, praise the Lord for it, it's called the police. And I'm not talking about that band with Sting as the singer. I'm talking about law enforcement. And we have this thing called incarceration, which disincentivizes crime. What happens when the police are removed? What happens when the police are in, incapacitated? We know what happens. I mean, you can see, you can download YouTube videos and see what happens when the police are incapacitated. People start looting. There's violence. There's evil. The only reason there's not more of that is because God has created this thing called government to with, 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 uh, withhold the effects of sin. I was just reading yesterday about D.L. Moody, historian. You know, in in 1861, when the the great Chicago fire happened, he was preaching, and he went to take care of his family. He was worried about them, and when he got to his home, made sure his family was okay, 
As soon as he got there, looters came into his house to steal all of his stuff. I mean, the city's burning to the ground, and looters are there stealing his stuff. That's us. That's us as human beings. The best evidence for total depravity is how society falls apart when law enforcement isn't there to enforce the law. I've been reading a biography of Winston Churchill by Andrew Roberts, and I was shocked to read that Churchill affirmed this. Churchill, you know, he, he was not a theologian. He was not a theologian. But he had insight into human nature. And he, he wouldn't have used the term total depravity, but he, you know, he watched a whole nation of people, the Germans and then the Russians too. He watched a whole nation of people turn into killers. And he had, he had to make sense of that. And he said this, he said, while men are gathering knowledge and power, with ever-increasing and measureless speed, their virtues and their wisdom have not shown any notable improvement as the centuries have rolled. That is so insightful. You have this mechanized warfare in World War II and all of these advances. What did we use it for? To kill each other. And then he says this. He says, The nature of man has remained hitherto practically unchanged. Everybody listening? He says, under sufficient stress, starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy, the modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds, and his modern woman will back him up. If you study history, you know that's true. You know that's true. It's true of bad people, and it's also true of quote-unquote good people. The Russian poet Ivan Turgenev he said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible, he says. You know, some people might object to what I'm saying here, this description of total depravity, and they might say, well, you know, that's, come on, Tony, that's just a, it's just a doctrine for old, dead, white guys. Come on. All right. Well, Vody Bauckham said this, who's neither dead nor white, he said, your understanding of the doctrine of total depravity can be the difference between believing in a person that they just need a pill to feel better or should feel horrible about what's going on and need to come to repentance. We have a culture that because of the denial of this doctrine and because of a failure to acknowledge the depravity of man automatically in every instance goes straight to, let's make a person feel good because nobody ought to feel bad. That's not a solution to our problem. That's not a solution. And by the way, the, uh, let me just, just a little history lesson here. The doctrine of do total depravity as it's currently articulated, I want you to know that you know, that, that didn't originate with Protestant reformers in Europe. That actually originated in Africa with an African theologian named Augustine in the third and the fourth century. Augustine had to battle against this distinguished and honorable monk from Britain, a man named Pelagius, who argued that man, man has the ability to morally resuscitate himself. Pelagius didn't believe that man was depraved. He didn't believe that man was enslaved to sin. He thought that man could escape sin with a little elbow grease, you know? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that kind of thing. That's what man needs to do. And Augustine said no. No, we can't do that. We are dead in our sins. We need help. We need help. And, you know, Augustine, his ideas didn't originate with him. They didn't originate in Africa. He's just saying what Paul was saying in 
in Romans chapter 3. And you know what? Romans is quoting the Old Testament. And the Old Testament came from God. This is ultimately God's doctrine. This is how God views us. Man is dead in our sins. That's how God sees us. And that's why God had to do something about it. God says no one is righteous. No one, not even one. Tim Keller said once, you can read this on the screen, he said, whenever I look out on a Manhattan crowd, many of you look quite marvelous, but this is what you look like to God. Night of the living dead. Spiritually speaking, this is the case underneath all of our doing good, underneath all of the good deeds and the working for charity and trying to do the right thing and trying to honor your parents, all these good deeds. There's anger. There's touchiness. There's, there's turning on people if they harm you. There's sin in our hearts, and our hearts need to be changed. Without Christ, Harvest, you can quote me on this, without Christ, we're walking zombies, okay? We're an episode of, what's that show? Walking dead. Zombies moving around, dead. You can't resuscitate yourself. You need to be born again. You might say, Pastor Tony, I wish it wasn't like that. I wish things were different. Well, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. This isn't about wishes and wants. This is about how it really is and what you need to do about it. This is our status before a holy God. And Paul argues from the scriptures. Paul argues from the very beginning, since Genesis 3, it's been that way. And he collects evidence from the Old Testament to state his case, the Bible says that no one is righteous. Now, I know, I can see it on your faces right now. You all look like, whew, man. I know this can seem discouraging. I know this can seem overwhelming. But what would you prefer? Do you want Paul to lie to you? Do you want Paul to pamper to you? Do you want, you know, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you're cancer-free, but really, you only had a few weeks to live. Would you be okay with that? Do you want Paul to tell you the emperor has no clothes, or do you want him to, to perpetuate the facade that's out there? Do you want the politicians to lie to you and tell you that the economy is great and we have no cause for alarm? This debt can just go on forever. Do you want your pastor to just give you a few quick self-help remedies that would make your life a little better, but then... Ignore the deepest need of your soul. I don't want a pastor like that. You shouldn't want a pastor like that either. And what's Paul doing here? He's telling us the truth. We're sinners. We're lost. Let's get back to the courtroom scene. We've got the charge. We've got the evidence. The, pos the prosecutor, Paul, has marshaled the evidence. And the bulk of this passage is the evidence. Verses 10 through 18. Here it is. Here's the truth. Here's why you're going to be convicted. Now it's time for us to defend ourselves before the judge. Okay? Here's our defense in verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? We've covered this already from chapter 2. We're all under the law, according to chapter 2. Paul says that even if we don't have the written law that we read, we have the law written on our hearts, and our conscience bears witness to that law. 
verses 12 through 16 of chapter two if you need to refresh that. So just to be clear, when Paul says whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Paul means all of us. We're all under the law. Paul means all Jews and all Gentiles. We're all under the law. Now we who know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Silence. That's the defense. That word for stopped here is the Greek word phraso. It means to close or to keep from opening. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 11.33 to describe how God shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. Our mouths are shut. Silence. No talking. There is no defense so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's your defense, church. Are you ready for it? Silence. We got nothing. We got no way to defend ourselves against these accusations. If Perry Mason was defending you, he'd have nothing to say. And he'd lose this case. And he he never loses. At least that I remember. In fact, he would never take your case. Because the evidence against you is incontrovertible and we are silent before the judge. Here's number three in your notes. Here's the defense, if you want to call it that. Every mouth is silent. Every mouth is silent. You know, you, you ever hear people say, you know, when I get before God, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. No, you won't. No, you won't. When I get before God, you know, I got some questions for him and I'm going to give him a... No, you won't. No, you won't. You will be silent before him. You will see him in all his awe and all his majesty and all his glory and you will see yourself in all your frailty and weakness and sinfulness and you will be quiet before his glory and before his power and before his awesomeness. And then the judge, what do judges do? He will judge you. He will render to every person the judgment that they deserve and that will be you and that will be me we will stand before the judge and we will receive exactly what we deserve judgment judgment unless unless what Pastor Tony we'll get to that in a minute Let's finish up the courtroom scene first. Here we are. We're silent before him. According to verse 19, what's left? The defense rests. Prosecution rests. What's left? Here's what's left, the verdict. And here's the verdict in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Everyone has the law. Either it's written on paper and you read it, or it was written on your hearts and your conscience told you about it. We all have the law, and the law, I want y'all to see this too in verse 20, the law is good. The law is good. It does us a favor, but it doesn't save us from sin. It does us a favor in the the sense that it gives us knowledge of sin. It points out sin. It shows us that we're sinners and we need another way. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Paul says. But, but that doesn't change the verdict. 
The law can't save us. The verdict is in. Here's the verdict. The verdict is no one is justified by works before God. No one is justified by works before God. I know this is hard. I, I know this is maybe difficult for us to, to, to grapple with, but, but you need to know this is an essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not until we stop working. It's not until we despair of our self-saving that we can embrace the real offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's how Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, it's only when we stand silent before him as sinners that he can save us. Do you get it, church? Do you get it? As long as we defend ourselves and commend ourselves, we cannot be saved by God's grace. Just quit and realize that you're not saved by anything you do. You're saved by grace. The whole world is guilty before God, and that includes you and me. This is essential to our salvation. You might say, well, how's that practical, Tony? How's that practical? If you get that, you're going to worship your faces off on Sunday morning. You're going to come here and be like, I am so unworthy of God's grace. Let me worship him. And this, this rooftop will just fill the expression of our praise and how loud we sing these songs because we love God that much because we were saved by his good grace. If you get this, it will change your life. It'll change your eternity. And to that you might say, okay, well, Pastor, what's the good news then? It can't end here. How are we justified then if we're not justified by works? How do we deal with this sin problem we have? Is there any hope for us? So we just go to Culver's and eat ice cream and wait for judgment. Yes, we should go to Culver's. But we don't, we don't have to wait for judgment. We don't have to experience judgment. What are we going to do, Pastor Tony? Would you be satisfied if I said, well, come back next week and I'll tell you the good news, okay? Would y'all be okay with that? <laughs> I've gotten used to doing that, by the way. Next week's going to be great, by the way. You guys so faithfully have been listening to me wade through three chapters of depravity, and it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off next week, and it's going to pay off throughout the rest of the book of Romans as Paul transitions from all this talk of total depravity to talk about the goodness of grace, and that, that starts even next week with Romans three twenty-one through 31. One of the most celebrated passages in the Bible. I can't wait to preach that passage to you. But I can't wait till next week to get to the truth of the gospel that's found in Jesus Christ. You know why? Some of you might not have another week. We're not promised another day. We're not promised another hour. We're not promised next Sunday. And you need to know. You need to know. I, re I read about D.L. Moody that there was this crucial turning point in his life, and it happened on that Chicago Fire Day in 1871 that I mentioned. On that day when the fire hit Chicago, you know, after Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern or whatever happened, Moody was actually preaching. He was preaching to one of the largest crowds that had ever gathered to hear him preach. And he actually said in that message, he talks about this later in life, that you know, you guys think about this, this commitment to Christ, and come back next week, and we'll talk about it. But then the fire took place, and the whole city of Chicago got leveled, 
And, you know, he never saw some of those people again in his life. And, and that was a turning point in his life. And, and he, he regretted that sermon. And from that point forward, he said, I will never end a service without an urgent call to repentance. So this is my D.L. Moody moment right now, okay? I want to tell you the good news that is inescapably bound up with the bad news of Romans 1 through 3. And it, the good news is this. There's, everybody listening? I'm about done. We're going to take communion in a few moments, but I want you to hear this. There's actually a man that came into our world who escaped total depravity. Do you know that? He was born of a woman, but he wasn't conceived by man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was born sinless in this world. And he lived a sinless life. You know what we did to him? We killed him. Because we're depraved and he's not. We put him to death. He came into this world sinless, lived a sinless life, and then he died on the cross for our sins. Who are we talking about? We celebrate him every December, right? His name is Jesus. And he did, he was the, the Jesus of Christmas is also the Jesus of Easter Sunday. Do you know that? Not only was he born into this world, and we celebrate that. I hope you celebrate that at Christmas time. But he also died. The Jesus of Christmas is also the Jesus of Good Friday. He died on the cross for our sins, to pay for our sins so that we can have our sins removed, so that this depravity thing that we're held under can be removed from us. Jesus did that for you. And by Jesus, we are no longer under sin, but we're under grace. Can I just tell you something, Harvest Decatur? You're going to be under something. You're going to serve somebody. I'm the captain of my own soul, Pastor Tony. No, you're not. You're either under sin or you're under grace. Which is it? Which is it? I'm about done. I want to dip into next week's passage for just a second. Okay, I just want to go in there and then we'll come right back, all right? I'll save it all for next week. Before we take communion, I want to read you this. Look at verse 23, okay? This is so good. This is so good. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might say, that's bad, Pastor Tony. You've been preaching that for months. All right, all right, all right, all right. Keep reading. Keep reading. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Amen, church as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Amen and amen. That's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You can be saved. You can conquer this sin problem. Actually, Jesus conquered the sin problem. And you get to participate in that victory by faith in Christ. Do you believe? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? If you don't, let today be a day of salvation for you. Do you celebrate this Jesus at Christmas time? He's not just the Jesus of Christmas. He's the Jesus of Good Friday. He's the Jesus of Easter, and he rose from the dead. And he's even now preparing eternity for us. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? This city could burn to the ground tonight. Are you going to be with him in eternity?
Let's bow in a word of prayer. Some of you right now, you're saying, yes, I will be there, Pastor Tony. Yes, I am saved. Yes, I know I'm a sinner. And if that's you right now, I say, praise God. But there may be somebody here this morning who says, I don't know. I don't know. I've never really put my faith in this Savior who died on the cross for my sins. I've, I've never truly believed in His death and His resurrection. I've never truly believed that I'm a sinner who needs salvation. Well, God in His goodness offers you the free gift of grace. It's a gift. You have to receive it. So if it's if that's you this morning, then right now in the quietness of your soul, confess your sin before God. Confess your need for Him. And believe and be saved. Jesus, we're so grateful to you. We are such lousy sinners, Lord. We are so unworthy of your goodness, your sacrifice, your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for saving our souls. We don't take these communion elements now because that saves us, but we take it because it reminds us what you did for us. And Lord, I pray that you would be that your presence in this place right now would be strong as we take of the bread and remember your body on that cross dying for our sins as we take the cup and remember your blood shed for our sins God receive what we do now as an act of worship as an act of remembrance We love you. We worship you. We celebrate you now. In the name of Jesus, amen.